Your source for community, Muskoka-made talk shows are on Muskoka Magazine, The Bay 88.7. Hey, this is Dr. Shervin. Muskoka Magazine is brought to you by Dairy Lane Dental, keeping Muskoka smiling for over 30 years. Please visit DairyLaneDental.com. This is Muskoka Drawdown. Welcome to Muskoka Drawdown. My name is Frank DeYoung. Muskoka Drawdown is a function of Climate Action Muskoka. My special guest today is David Robinson. He's an economist who studied at Queen's University. He was a prof for many years at Laurentian, and he lives in Sudbury. Welcome to my show, David. Thank you. Glad to be here. Okay, let's get right into it. 100,000 people attended uh, COP28, the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change. Now, we've all been watching the results, and in your opinion, is it, has it been worth it? Well, I think that's one of those things we're going to have to find out, because the question isn't what COP agreed on. COP just halfway agreed on the obvious that we have to cut COP fossil fuels. The remarkable thing is if you have countries that are either completely dependent on fossil fuels or like Canada, where the fossil fuel companies have an enormous influence, those countries are not going to agree to getting rid of literally trillions of dollars worth of income. So in other words, in other words, we can't afford to save the planet. um, No. In other words, if you put the fox and the chickens in a room, they are not going to agree. But uh, so I know it's, but there's going to be um, pressure from the rest of the world on the holdouts, are there not? Hopefully to... Uh... Oh, yeah, there will be pressure. And we are making progress to getting an agreement among everybody else. And the oil companies and the oil states are going to agree nominally. But the big thing is, do we actually cut consumptions? And the truth is that the oil suppliers aren't the ones who cut consumption. The rest of us cut consumption. So are you talking about, uh, okay, is this going to be up to individual decisions or is this government or like, where is the, where is the onus? Because people vote <laughs> for a government and the government does what the people want, but what do the people really want? And do we have to depend on the government doing what people don't really want? Yes, 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 yes. <laughs> the people really want to survive and they want their grandchildren to survive. They also don't want to pay for it or be disturbed, which means that governments have to make the rational decision on behalf of the people. And that's their job, isn't it? So so what you're saying is that there is a way we can have our cake and eat it too. We can... Uh, government can can take action that will please what people really want. I know people just want to travel. They want warm houses. They want food. And they don't really care how we get it. We're not uh, spiritually connected to fossil fuels. People are would like to have an electric <laughs> car uh, if they had the choice. But, it, how, but their finances, the financial, the end of the month is more important to people than the end of the world, uh, to use a, a cliché. The end of the world is a lot closer than most people understand. All the recent research is saying we are about to fall over a cliff. Some of it is saying we have started the descent. We are talking about potentially, and here I'm going to cite someone like James Hansen, who's been working on this 
for a very long time, the new research suggests we could lose seven-eighths of the global population. Yeah. And that's by the end of this century. That means that there are people living today who are going to watch, if he's correct, more than half the people in the world die. Now, that's how serious it is. And I have neighbors who want to fly to Florida on the weekend. Yeah. And somebody's going to have to say, I'm sorry, Kitty, you can't do that. And we have not yet got the, the guts to do that at the level of our governments. But that's where we have to go. And if we don't do it democratically, we're going to end up doing it in a situation with enormous social chaos and costs and dictatorial governments as the only way that you can make those decisions. So people are going to have to toughen up a bit, Frank. <laughs> it's a grim story. And I know lots of people don't want to hear that. But the situation is much grimmer than people think. Are we, are we there yet? Obviously, you think we're not there yet as a population in terms of uh, understanding climate change as, as something that's very serious. Or someone, I was reading something that someone said, humans are naturally optimistic. I guess the <laughs> pessimistic ones died off or the tigers ate them. But people are optimistic, so we are assuming we will get through this. And we don't know how, but we think, and also we, it's the personal versus the collective, of course, is a big issue. It's a collective decision, but it's also a personal decision. And I'm, am I going to take a, a, an economic hit right now by, I have a, in my personal situation, we are on gas, we live in Huntsville, and we have a quite a new uh, uh, furnace, gas furnace, which was put in just recently before we bought the house. And am I going to spend $20,000, $25,000 to put in a, a heat pump and replace my gas? Do I have the $25,000? Well, I do. But am I going to take the hit right now? That's my question. And, it, and it's a serious uh, question. Well, we can talk about how to deal with those kinds of questions. And we should. Right now, we've got a situation where we've got a, a carbon tax that isn't high enough to have a big effect yet but a plan to raise it. And we have an opposition in our parliament saying this costs too much, and they are simply lying. The conservatives are lying about this. Now, the truth of the matter is there's a brilliant solution which costs people almost nothing because they get most, most of the money back. For most people in the country, they get more than they're putting in for, for fuels. So there are solutions that don't hurt. But is they it, take some nerve. It does. Was it as simple as that the federal government should have sent hard copy paper checks <laughs> to everybody instead of just letting it be deposited automatically? Most people, friends of mine, say, I don't think I'm getting any of these payments. And I say, of course you are. You just don't recognize them. And this has been in the paper, too. So was it a marketing or a communication problem of the federal yes. government? I mean, that that's obviously the... The right strategy is you give people money or you give them back their money. That's how every government sells the project. You give them back their own money, right? Yeah. So the liberals didn't do that. That was a pretty serious tactical mistake. Yes. Um, so let, let me go on about your furnace question, though. Please. You can't afford to put a furnace in. It will save money. So 
obviously in the longer run, this is a good economic move as well as a good climate move. So what's holding you back? What holds you back is that you don't want to put that money up front. Governments can come to you, Frank, and say, Frank, I'll tell you what, we will lend you all the money to put that furnace in. It's going to save you this many dollars a month. You're, we're going to take that, either add that to your taxes or take it off your carbon fee until you've paid it back. Exactly. You don't then have to find that money up front. The government will take the debt on, but we will save huge amounts of disaster expenditure later on. So it's a good investment. But you don't feel it as a cost. So would that be like that, you're that would also work free. with a with an electric car, right? An, an electric vehicle. And in fact, a lot of people say it should be the municipal government that could admin this. I don't much care. No, it's exactly. somebody that it has to be senior levels of government that say we're going to fund it. They we are going to take the responsibility for the loans that you're issued to get your heat pump. Um, you probably read that uh, Pierre Polyev is is he's going to axe the tax, which means the carbon tax. He says he will, but he's but he's also they also the conservative also said they're not going to touch the carbon pricing for large emitters. Uh, you probably read that too. So that's in a in a sense, it's a good it's a good um, good side of of the conservatives. They know. <laughs> Are you completely? Uh, disgusted with the conservatives or is there is there are they going to do other things that may compensate for is it just politics at work here and it, it comes down to that whether they intend to be or not they're working against climate action and they're working for oil companies because when they say they're going to maintain the existing level of large emitter taxation well, that's about an eighth what everybody else pays for their emissions, not for their what they're selling, for their emissions. When they use gas to cook tar in Alberta, they don't pay for those emissions except for a little bit at the very top. Okay, you pay for everything you burn. They pay for the little fraction at the top. Are the conservatives talking about charging them the same kind of rate that you pay. Now, don't forget that all this gas that they're burning is for oil that they're exporting to the United States. So in effect, you are subsidizing the oil companies to export gas and oil to the United States. How do you feel about that? Exactly. Um, one thing I wanted to chat with you about, you seem to support the idea of nuclear power as a way of greening the grid, whereas a lot of nuclear power uh, opponents think that nuclear power is not green. What's your thoughts on that? Well, the European Union's decided it's green. The, the Americans have decided it's green. Canada has decided it's green. So that's the official technical sort of view. China didn't even bother. They just understand that they have not a hope in hell of decarbonizing without nuclear power, so they're building it. And yeah. um, compared to anybody else, they're building far more solar, wind, and nuclear because they're deadly serious. Buy Muskoka for Muskoka, your collection of Muskoka-based talk shows. Muskoka Magazine, The Bay, 88.7.
Welcome back, uh, David Robinson to Muskoka Drawdown. We were talking before the break about um, nuclear power. What I always hear these days is that wind and solar costs, you know, two, three cents a kilowatt, whereas nuclear is, uh, I don't know what it is, 20, 30, 40 cents a kilowatt. You said earlier before the break that we don't know the cost of nuclear, of uh, wind and solar. What did you mean by that? The two or three cents a kilowatt is in ideal circumstances. That's what you could possibly do if you have lots of sunshine and so on. And that's whenever it happens to be. Now, the trouble with this kilowatt is that you don't want kilowatts. That is capacity. You want delivery, kilowatt hours. And when you start calculating in terms of kilowatt hours, then, of course, you've got to take into account the two problems. One of them is that you don't have kilowatts all the time from solar or wind. So somehow you got to store it. And the other is you don't have it at the right time. Now, it costs money to ship boxes from Japan to Canada. And it costs money to ship power from noon to midnight. It costs money. And when you get those costs included, suddenly these systems look a lot more similar. Um, okay, let's just switch to electric vehicles, for instance. A lot of people are skeptical still about EVs that they are ultimately as polluting as uh, and or not dangerous as polluting uh, and well as as ICE vehicles, internal combustion engines. Prim one of the reasons primarily is because of the batteries, right? So, what's your thought on the batteries? I have read things recently that if an EV pays for itself in terms of ecological costs in like a year and a half or something. Are you optimistic about electric vehicles? Yeah, I think they're inevitable. I think we're going to have to build a lot of them. I'm not sure we have all the metals that we need to build as many as we need. I think we're up against the wall in terms of mineral resources at this point. That's a big problem for the transition to electricity. But the electric vehicles, you've got two numbers out there, really. One came up that Volkswagen came up with that says it could take seven years. One that Ford came up with, which said a year and a half, sometimes less. And a lot of that depends on how much you drive. My wife and I don't drive very much. And when we do drive, it's all in town. We could get along with a very small battery. And in fact, we have 70 kilometers on our battery, 70. We never use gasoline in town, which is 90% of our driving. But because we go down to Waterloo where our kids are, we have a hybrid. Now that means we've cut out 90% of our fuel use with a small battery. That's efficient. In fact, that's really quite good. For most people, that would work. So this push to full electric is probably not really the most economic way of doing it. Yeah. Uh, yeah, but then I always think that this is pie in the sky, but I think we need to get rid of all automobiles and, <laughs> and go to transit and walkable communities, European-style communities. Quality of life is way higher. People go to Europe or even Central America because they can walk everywhere. People don't even go on vacations in Canada because we have such a horrendous built environment and it's because of the car culture. 
But that would also save an awful lot of, of pollution and, and fossil fuels if we had a, a rational urban setting so that people could walk everywhere and use transit. On that note, we are, the, the Conservative government of Doug Ford is bringing back the Ontario Northland, which is we're very excited about. So we appreciate that, don't, don't we? Well, it's not a big thing, but it's a good thing, yes. <laughs> what do you mean it's not a big thing? Is it not the, is there a potential that we could have a real revival that we could once again, like a hundred years ago, there was a, a passenger and freight to every town in Ontario. Do you think we'll ever see that again if rational minds prevail? If rational minds prevail, sure. <laughs> okay. But you don't uh, if wishes if were horses, everybody would ride. You know the story. <laughs> um, <clears throat> you're absolutely right. I mean, Europe grew up in a period, its population was largely established, its infrastructure was largely established in the period before there were cars. So they have a pretty compact population distribution. North America developed most of its growth during a period when land was free and transportation was really cheap. Yep. Okay, so our infrastructure is now spread out. Our habits of living, our individual budgets have all been committed to having a car and a house of our own and, and a big yard. There's a huge transition cost. I don't know what we do about that. Yeah. Frank, I wish I knew. That's one of the biggest challenges for Canadians there is. Yeah, I've been I've been thinking about that a lot and work, working on it as a, with an international organization that's associated with the rental value capture or land value taxation. You mentioned to you that you've been your daughter is working that on a little bit. The idea, of course, is that we should shift taxes off of buildings and onto the land so that there's a financial incentive for people to optimize land use and quit wasting land and reducing sprawl. Does that make sense to you or? Well, let me say this as a PhD economist with 40 years experience now, including my training, right? Yes, that makes sense. It's not popular among economists, largely because we've gotten used to this idea that everybody owns their chunk of land and can get the capital gains from it. And both in the United States and in Canada, we get to take off, take out the capital gains. Everybody wants to sell their house for more than they spent on it. Well, that doesn't make a lot of sense because where that extra money comes from in the end is from the tenants. Yeah. I mean, it's really simple. You're not getting it from the person who buys the house because they're going to sell the house at an increase too. Yeah. But what we're seeing right around the world right now is essentially institutional buyers gobbling up urban land. They're gobbling up land everywhere. And you know what that is? That's the same structure as under the feudal system where landowners sucked the extra value that's produced from the land out. Well, now most of the extra value is in cities, to tell the truth. Yeah, you just what's made. Happening? Well, go ahead. I was just going to say you just made an argument, a wonderful argument for land value taxation. So absolutely, I'm <laughs> agreeing with you the long way around. Right? Okay, no, I really under, I appreciate hearing from you on that because um, it, it's one way. It's a, an elegant market mechanism 
because it's right as you mentioned right now we have an, uh, a battle there's a, a war sort of an economic war between tenants and owners of land and nobody even knows this battle is going on tenants i was a renter myself in toronto for 20 years and at the end of 20 years i still had no zero equity but as soon as you buy land you rise with the market my parents came from the netherlands they bought a farm everyone owned their own land 50 years ago 70 years ago, and they all rose with the market. So that gave us a certain amount of economic equity across society. But now there are more and more, it's the people who own versus the people who rent. And there's this huge, and this is for businesses as well. And it's a, it's a real problem that could be addressed with land value taxation. Yeah, one problem with a lot of the Georgist discussion is they haven't, and I say Georgist because this particular theory comes out of Henry George, a a fellow everybody should know about, and very few economists actually learn about, to tell the truth. But one problem with much of the George's discussion is people can build equity without getting speculative gains on land. You can put money in and keep it. That's called building equity. You can put work into improving the space that you live in, even if you don't own the land, even if you can't speculate on the land component, you can work on a property and make it better. And if you improve a property, it is worth more and someone will pay you for that input you've made. So we've got to start to solve the problem of how do you build equity without speculation? Because speculation is the easy way, but once it gets too profitable, once prices start to rise too fast, Essentially, all those rich people with their money in the bank start grabbing up properties. And after a while, your kids or even you will never get into the game again. Exactly. exactly. Well said. Um, We're out of time, but I want to give you the last word. You seem to think that a lot of politicians actually are liars. Now, those are those unparliamentary language. David, but uh, does that do you use that terminology uh, uh, lightly or seriously? For the conservatives' view on axing the tax and their reasons for it, I don't believe Poliev is so stupid that he doesn't understand that most people are not suffering from the tax. I don't believe he's that stupid. Now, there's only two alternatives. He's stupid or he's lying. I don't think Trudeau is lying when he says most people get the money back. I don't think he's lying when he says we have to do this. I think he was actually courageous when he brought in a tax when even a big part of his party opposed. But Poliev, this particular politician on this particular issue is lying. End of the story. All right. I will accept that uh, uh, under advisement. (laughs) I'd like to know Uh, if you think you've got another explanation. I don't, I'm afraid. Uh, Okay, David, we're officially out of time. I really appreciate you. You are a wonderful resource. uh, And thank you so much for coming on uh, on Muskoka Drawdown today. And it's a delight to spend some time with you, Frank. All right. Talk to you soon. I went to the city. When all the trees were gone And I laid there on an asphalt lawn And she cried out a thousand days Of hurricanes and floods Her face ran with tears And the streets ran with blood Fur coats and sushi boats And diesel in the air